This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Ladies and gentlemen of Dreamland, welcome. It's a new year. It's a, it's a new show. I am your host, not Whitley Strieber, but Jeremy Vaney. And I'm doing the thing that if anyone has been following me at all, you probably would think I wouldn't do, which is start off the new year right with a book about alien abductions involving hypnosis. Because if anyone... Uh, knows anything about me, it's that I've been sort of speaking out against hypnosis as a memory retrieval tool. Um, but have I found a book and an author that uh, is the exception that proves the rule? <laughs> Maybe. We'll find out together. Um, the book is called, and I'll, I'll have a fancy graphic for it eventually, but uh, The Seventh Dead. Uh, the UFO and the Underworld, a memoir, and the author is Brian Short, and Brian is here with me now. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi. It's good to see you. Uh, this is an interesting book to me, um, and yet when I think about it, it's kind of like, oh, actually what it is is just plain honest. Like... Like the thing that I that that I find interesting is that you're sort of um, it, it seems like you're wondering if you're actually having these experiences or if you're, uh, you know, not making it up, but kind of a wannabe, just kind of imagining things. And maybe you've read too much and you're trying to square peg round hole certain things or not. And it strikes me like that sort of honesty throughout the book, along with the other vulnerabilities that you display is the thing that all abduction books should be about. And in essence, the unknown is what they're all about. It's just some of them claim to know, <laughs> which is basically a lie, right? So uh, the thing that's interesting is on, you're not lying even to yourself and to us. And I'm wondering if you're doing that for uh, a purpose um, beyond like the obvious you want to be honest. Like, are you trying to invoke something a feeling or a state in the reader as they go along um, by being sort of constantly walking the line of like, what is real? What isn't real? Yeah, that's a good question because I don't really know if I set out to evoke a particular experience in the reader, that of questioning, I don't know how successful I would be. So really, the only thing that I can do is be as honest with myself and ultimately with the reader about what I think my experience is or what my experience is, which is highly conditional. I mean, there are only a couple of, of instances where I can say for sure something weird definitely happened. And then there's a lot of things, a lot of other experiences that kind of constellate around those experiences that have the same flavor and whatnot and by flavor i mean it evokes a certain feeling in me there's some kind of odd otherness that seems to vibrate at the same you know to get try and avoid being too new agey about it that vibrates at a sympathetic frequency where i can say oh this thing that i'm feeling now is like that thing that i experienced when i was much younger. So then I kind of constellate these experiences together under the UFO rubric or whatnot. So 
in terms of honesty, that's kind of a, a, a um, how would I put it? It's something that I need to be with myself just in order to survive. Like I can't go very far if I assert something that I'm not all that sure about without saying I'm not all that sure about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And does that answer the question? I'm, it does. I'm going a little roundabout, but I think I'm addressing the issue. Don't go anywhere, non-subscribers. We will be back after these short messages with Brian Short, author of The Seventh Dead. Um, so I want to read a little something that uh, it's a take on something that I had sent to you earlier because I, I thought, like, this is way too heady to just spring on you. But it's sort of my take on what this book is. And if people are wondering, like, why I'm starting off this way, it's because there's no other way to start. I, I mean, I could start with, like, hey, why the name of the title? And I guess we'll get into that. But really, I feel like this book is it's doing something like the architecture of of the way it is crafted or perhaps even the way your life is crafted maybe there's no distinguishing is doing something and it's not just doing what the narrative is so to sit here and say oh it's a book about alien abduction or you know a, a nut biting your finger or something is like these these things aren't going to do this any justice so uh let me just read this because i want to get your take on this this is what I wrote. Um, this is the memoir of a man making sense of his size strangest experiences. He wonders if he's really having them or is a wannabe in search of meaning and working out his issues with his parents. Brian lives in a liminal headspace that most, if not all, experiencers can relate to. Reading his book puts us right there with him. Structurally, as a whole, then, the book challenges the stability of our shared reality by provoking instability within the individual reader. Brian is constantly calling himself into question in a way many of us have long abandoned for our delusions of permanence in an impermanent world. To learn how to genuinely walk in this world and speak the symbolic language of an energy that speaks to you, through you, and as you, utilizing matter and expectation as its alphabet, is to walk the hidden real ground that underlies the societal agreements we use to collectively ignore how the universe we live in and are truly behaves. The Seventh Dead doesn't give instructions on how to do this. It's a straightforward examination of a life lived in this way. Examining such a life, as a reader, has its own effect. Just try and not be moved or influenced by what you read here. Do you think that's too melodramatic, or do you think that's true? Um, I think that's really well articulated, and it's you're right, it is a lot to get my head around it. But it's typical of the sort of things that you write, which are, you know, packed full of meaning that isn't necessarily obvious at first take. Um, but I mean, as far as it addresses my book, you know, it, it, there's a certain instability in just the person that I am. I mean, in, in my life and and my experience experience around UFOs, experience around everything, really, that it's very hard to say I'm certain of these things. I'll try and illustrate and make it make sense. I mean, as far as, like, my career and relationships and just my general um, relationship to the world at large, the external world at large, it's kind of shaky, and there's been a lot of 
a lot of um, ups and downs and a lot of disappointments and a lot of things that are just difficult to deal with, you know, and that has put me just by my nature, I think, into this very liminal space, you know, if I was more certain about who I was or how I relate to the world at large, then I would probably be in a more, well, I would be in a more definite kind of space, but I would have a very limited perspective. And so from this perspective of being not quite engaged in three-dimensional reality, I guess, or in the, in the world, I look at it in a certain kind of way, which is highly, you know, highly conditional. And I think I can't really help but communicate that, again, if I'm honest with myself and with the readers, primarily with myself, I can't help but communicate that sense of uncertainty in a way that is destabilizing to anybody who takes it to heart. And that's maybe a good thing. That's maybe not a good thing. I don't really know. And again, I think I'm kind of just talking around issues. I'm not sure if I'm really addressing your question. When you talk um, to people about this in your hmm, personal life, (laughs) when you talk about, when you talk about this stuff with people in your personal life, do they come back and report after having spoken with you, uh, like creepy stuff happening to them that night or anything like that sort of high strangeness effects sort of rubbing off on them? Generally not. No, but that's, um, it depends on who I talk to. You know, I know a number of people who have, who have had, you know, UFO and likewise experiences. And I belong to a group that meets online. And so for people to have experiences or not is kind of par for the course. Uh, when I talk to people just on the, you know, on the day to day, I don't know that it evokes, you know, an experience with them, but it's strange how often I meet people who have had, you know, some kind of experience like this. Okay. I just, uh, I want to read a little bit here and just get your response. Cause I think this, we're sort of building out like what I think this book is about or sort of the, the important, I don't know, contextual bullet points. Um, because again, it's weird. It's interesting. It's a straightforward book, but it's not like any other abduction book that I've ever read. So kudos uh, for, for achieving that, because um, I've read a lot and I've written a few. Um, but you say here in page 153, um, since I am at base a dissociative, uh, a mind person who floats at some distance from things, nothing in the world I live in can be quite what it is or only what it is. There's always this synaptic gap from the thing, uh, from the thing as thing, and a certain remoteness from myself. Yeah. So here's what I've got for that. I read that, <laughs> and I was wondering: um, is it possible that because you were a loner uh, and an introvert, that the way you felt seen uh, was to be seen by life per se? as opposed to by people. Um, And so you read signs and symbols and sort of what other people would consider to be the background unseen backdrop of their backdrop of their lives. Like the stuff people ignore. Were you reading that because um, you wanted to be seen by life, not by people? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that's possible. I think so. Yeah. By life, you mean sort of by spirit, perhaps, or by, I don't know, call it God or something, or or this other thing. Yeah, certainly that right. brings to mind, yeah, and that's actually sort of one of the core questions that I'm that I'm asking myself throughout the book is, is this in some way a substitute, this being the UFO experience and my, what I think my relationship is with this other, is this some way a substitute for normal human experience or for normal human relationship? And that's maybe not quite what you're asking, but that's something that I'm asking myself. And that possibility exists. That's something that I have to keep in mind. Well, at the same time, I think that there is definitely an other that's speaking. Now, perhaps I'm a little bit more keyed to the symbolic aspect of things, the potential symbolic meaning of everyday events in a way that most people aren't. And that, to some degree, is what separates me from a more kind of common and shared experience. But at the same time, it does keep me keyed in to this sort of thread of meaning that seems to run throughout things. Um, so that I think that addresses your question. Um, but it is very important to me that there is a thread of meaning there. So that's yeah. both something that keeps me alive and potentially something that I'm using to delude myself. <laughs> well, it struck me yeah. kind of like, uh, well, I guess much the same way indigenous people um, who live lives balanced between the external and the internal and noise and silence. Um, and maybe because of that, a lot of uh, First Nations peoples around the world don't have as much of an individuated sen I sense of self, um, so much as community and relationship mm -hmm. and family. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, like if you grow up in a Western society and, but you're sort of functioning that way, do you become you, you know, like you don't have, so in other words, you end up with this sort of undifferentiated sense of I, but the, the relationship in the family that you feel isn't actually with your family, um, because you find it hard to relate to them because they're solidly who they are and, dysfunctional in whatever ways and all of that. Um, so I'm wondering is, you know, part of the confusion, maybe even in your life and my life and experiencers lives, the fact that we're not indigenous <laughs> of indigenous mind, the fact that we, we don't have any culture to be brought into with this stuff. Um, we don't identify with each other in the healthiest of ways, let's say necessarily. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if you're stuck in that society and you're hesitant to have a fully formed I in the, the you know, in, in the self-centered sense, not like, you know, the healthy, we all have to have an adult sense of self, but the unhealthy thing that our society is, like if, if we're struggling against that, is this just what we become? I mean, do we naturally start to look like some sort of uh, mutated version, you know, betwixt and between like First Nations peoples and Western peoples. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And one I don't know that I have any sort of answer for. Um, I think that in our Western society, I'm going to try and speak authoritatively here when I have no authority. But I think that in our Western society, what we're gifted with the opportunity of doing is, is individuated, you know, is, is since we have such an emphasis on the self, the ego, the personality as apart from, you know, the community, that's kind of our, our mission, I guess, is to develop that individuated self, or at least that's something that we're potentially able to do. And oddly enough, I think that we do that partly through, well, partly through differentiation, saying, I am me because I am not you. I am this because I'm not that. We sort of contrast ourselves against your environment, or at least I do, uh, you know, particularly early on going like, you know, for me, it was, it was, and still is, you know, a very deep insecurity where you're going like, I know I don't fit here in Western society and people doing the things that they do and it all making sense to them. I know that that doesn't make sense to me and I don't quite fit. And so that kind of throws me into a bit of a crisis in figuring out who I am. And in a way, that's kind of a gift. Now, I'm speaking of myself personally, but I think I'm also speaking to some degree about the potential of anybody in the Western you know, world who is faced with this task of, of figuring out who they are. And um, by being not quite in tune with the world around us, me, then that puts me onto a very individual path where it might seem like I don't have an individuated self or really well-defined ego, but that's kind of ironically exactly what I do have, you know? Now, how to put this into, into a context of, of the liminality that I think you're speaking of between a Western, you know, ego self-oriented culture and a more indigenous kind of collective culture. I don't know. That's, you know, that's kind of a cop out maybe, but I don't know. I know that I do feel a certain kind of calling towards that more collective sense of what I imagine indigenous cultures to be. Um, because I'm not a member of one. I didn't grow up with one. I have about as much, say, Native American blood in me as any white person in America does, so I can't really claim any sort of identity that way, but I do feel a calling to that more collective and certainly more magical sense that, that seems to come from, from a more indigenous kind of culture. So I guess in a way with not fitting in Western culture properly, that kind of um, shoves me into a corner or shoves me into an in-between state between worlds. Does that, does that address your question? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, because, you know, it's sort of fashionable now to say that, um, you know, experiencers are shaman, right? They're like, we're the modern day shaman. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. that doesn't quite fit to me, but it's, uh, well, you know, but I, I see what you're talking about. It's a that? lot of work. Well, yeah, right. First of all, being a shaman is becoming like, a shaman, right? A skill. 
<laughs> a skill don't set. just have a vision and go like, oh, it's not, you know. Right. You, you spend at least a year in the jungle, in the jungle, taking ayahuasca or you know, thrown off a cliff or whatever. It's not easy, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit glib for I think that a lot of that. that a lot of people, and I, I understand the temptation, you know, is to say like, well, I'm shamanic now. And it's like, well, maybe, but you haven't really, you know, gotten the chops for that, and it's not easy to do. But I get, I think I get the um, the impulse to do that because there is a sort of there's there's an otherworldliness. I mean, obviously, there's another worldliness to the UFO experience, but there's there's a thing about it that kind of shoves you into a very highly symbolic state of of being at least that's my experience and that i think is primarily shamanic but again just being kind of put into that space of of relating with the symbolism and and the meaning behind them i don't think that necessarily makes you a shaman but i can see why it does have that kind of shamanic resonance Free Dreamlanders, one more quick break, and then we'll be back to finish up with Brian Short, author of The Seventh Dead. When you were writing this, um, you know, because there are some big experiences, but it's a lot of smaller experiences um, that you're really putting a magnifying glass to. And do you differentiate when you're writing what you think is important for the reader as opposed to what was personally important to you? Well, I'm always thinking about that, you know, because as I'm writing, I'm not just writing to myself. I am imagining an audience there. So I want to make things clear as I can for this imagined audience, which hopefully becomes a real audience at some point. But um, it is primarily myself that I'm, you know, in my own experience, my own thoughts, my own doubts, and whatever certainties or, or imaginations that I have, you know, imaginings that I have, that's primarily what I'm what I'm engaging with. Hmm. As far as uh, like, I'm trying to think of it's it's bucking trends. This book, in a way, uh, of, of like of the things that we want to say about ourselves often as experiencers, or at least I have felt the urge to, or felt it for me, whether I've said it out loud or not, like at some point, I certainly felt like I was on a hero's journey. Like at some point it's like, Oh, there's this mythical archetypal hero's journey. This doesn't feel, but you know, I sort of grew out of that <laughs> eventually, but a lot of people don't, but this doesn't, it seems like you never really thought that at all. Like, it seems like you really resisted having any sort of take on it other than just trying to figure out, okay, is this happening? And what does it mean that it is? Um, is is that correct, or do you mm -hmm. secretly feel like, no, it's there's something about me here that's important, and it's for my growth or for learning or whatever, you know, whatever it is we put on that. What do you, what do you secretly feel as opposed to what you've written in the book? <laughs> there's a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, of course, I want to be special. Of course, I want to be important. You know, of course, I want to, you know, see myself as the center of something. Um, but again, it's very important that I be honest with myself and bring things into perspective. Because if I'm not, life has taught me that that um, karma is instant and it'll come back and it'll slap me down. So um, 
boy, I just got, and speaking of fuzzy karma and, and, and instant slapping down, I just got really fuzzy headed. So I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. Um, <laughs> could you repeat the question or rephrase it? Well, just do you, uh, I mean, have you ever, or do you now like sort of feel like you're on either a hero's journey or a quest of some sort? Are you, is this about your evolution? Is it a learning lesson? If so, what the heck are you okay. learning? Um, yeah. Um, I'm learning how to be a person and I'm learning how to be as wholly the person that I seem to be uh, becoming. Um, yeah, I guess you can frame that as a hero's journey. I don't really find that really appealing because it makes me feel like I'm trying to be too important. Mostly, and this is not an exaggeration or mere rhetoric, it's a matter of survival for me. You know, it's like I was faced with a crisis at a pretty, pretty early age in that, you know, I seemed to be alcoholic or at least I had a real, you know, serious problem with, with drinking and drugs and, and all that. And I needed to clean up. And the way to do that was to be rigorously honest, as honest with myself as I could be. And I was convinced, you know, from those early days, and I'm still convinced now that if I can't be that honest with myself, then it's going to kill me. You know, maybe not instantly, but sooner or later, the consequences of being dishonest with myself will catch up and they will cause my self-destruction. And that's not really something that I want to do. So the alternative in that case is to grow spiritually. And this is what, you know, my experience in the 12-step groups and with sobriety has taught me is that spiritual growth you know despite what they have to say about it or not say about it for me this is true spiritual growth is absolutely necessary it's a it's a path that i need to stay on whatever that means and for me that spiritual path is indicated in some degree or another by my you know liminal ufo experiences or whatnot they're speaking to a very deep level they're evoking a very deep level in me and so that is, um, that's primary. Now, whether this is, you know, can I frame this as a hero's journey? I know people have done so. And I hesitate to use that kind of language for myself because I think that the hero's journey, I mean, you know, studying writing and being a writer and trying to do this well, I've read, you know, various guidebooks about, you know, I've read Joseph Campbell and I, you know, really draw a lot on his work and on Carl Jung's foundational work that he drew from. And now there's, you know, kind of a guidebook, or at least there was 10, 15 years ago about how to write a story. Here's how you're supposed to write a story. It's the hero's journey. The hero's journey goes like this. They do this, they do this, they do this, they do this, and then blah, you got the hero's journey. And that's how every story needs to be told. And I'm very resistant to that kind of cut and dry, even though it's based on things that are very archetypal and very deeply thematic and, and part of our souls, I think. There's a part of me that just says, like, no, that's not enough. There's there's more to it. I mean, you know, now there's kind of a response that there's like also a heroine's journey. That makes total sense. You know, what's the female perspective on the hero's journey? Because the hero's journey is even though it's not necessarily male-centric, it 
does kind of come off that way. Yeah. And I think I'm missing a lot of important points trying to talk about, you know, feminist issues, but I'll stop there before I embarrass myself. <laughs> but I think that there's a wider spectrum of, of storytelling that is just as, just as endemic to the human condition as the hero's journey is. And so, yeah, I'll just, I'll shut up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So part of why I think people often feel they're on a hero's journey or that they're part of some, you know, a character in a story from on high is because uh, of the synchronicities that they have in their lives. And although I don't think you use the word once in the book, which was refreshing, you certainly describe a lot of synchronistic events. And so I guess how important is that to you in trying to figure out whether or not something is coming from outside of you or not? Um, the fact that, that there are synchronistic events that sort of play to something else happening other than your own internal, you know, unconscious stuff. Right. Yeah. And that's actually a really deep question because, you know, a synchronicity certainly has the appearance of an other speaking to me, you, through events in the outer world. Things kind of conglomerate into a meaningful whole that's a causal, you know, that doesn't, you know, you can't say this caused that. And that can very easily lead to a sense of inflation because it seems like, well, I must be very important in that case if the whole world is speaking to me through events that I'm not causing. So there's, you know, that makes me somehow instrumental in the evolution of, of our society. I want, you know, is the temptation to say. So, but where is it really coming from? You know, is it coming from an other? And I, that's certainly how I feel that it's coming through because it's bigger than me. But to what degree is a larger part of myself speaking to myself through these events is, is I think an underlying question is like, to what degree is it really the other? Is it really the larger world or some spiritual world that's speaking through me? that's speaking through these events through through these and um <clears throat> i don't have an answer for that but what does come to mind and i i is an experience around my mother's death this was you know, about five years ago and in the week or so following that and i described this experience in the book is that um my sister and i were meeting down at our old um her old apartment in the, in the retirement home to try and, you know, go through her things and clean up and, and basically move her out of, out of the assisted living um, community. And on the way down there, I stopped to buy gas at a Seven Eleven store and how did it work out? It's like, Oh, now I forget the particular conglomeration of, of events, the, the particular like sequence of events, but Okay, it was on the 11th of November of 2017 when my mother actually died. So there's 11, 11, 17. Seems like significant numbers, right? And then I stop at a 7-Eleven. There's that 7-Eleven to buy some gasoline. And what, it, what the receipt that I don't check 
until later tells me is that I bought exactly $11.17. I forget the exact number, but it was like, there's that 11, there's that seven again. It was like this crazy, crazy, um, you know, mashing together of apparently very significant numbers, all kind of meaning nothing. Now, this was at a point where I was like, you know, as a point of emotional crisis, you know, the death of my death of a parent and, and having to deal with all the, you know, I was executor of a, her estate. So I had a lot of things to deal with. And here we were going to deal with her stuff. And so I was really kind of in a, you know, in an anxious state. And then these really significant numbers seem to be, you know, trying to tell me something. But I had to stop and say, like, what is this leading me towards? You know, okay, there's there's this significance of the numbers, and I can go crazy around that. You know, the 11-11, I don't know what that means. Maybe it's important, maybe it's not. I had had the experience years before of dating a woman who saw such numbers as, like, God, angels. You know, she was so far out into the New Age, you know, terminology of things that it was really kind of sickening. I'll, you know, try to pay respect to to people's belief without without trashing them. And at the same time, I do kind of share those beliefs. So I want to, you know, kind of modulate my tone here. It's just that I had an experience with a woman who was so far out and really just so narcissistic that it kind of colored my experience, colored, colored my experience around these sort of significant numbers. 11-11, I had baggage where that's concerned. So here I've got this, you know, here I've got this receipt that seems to be saying, oh, 11-11, 11-11. And I realized that if it has a purpose, what this synchronicity is trying to communicate to me, it's allowing me an offers, opportunity to just completely wrap myself up in crazy. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that there was no significance. I was saying that it seemed to be a little bit deliberately crazy making. And so it was a temptation for me to try and find significance that may not be there in these numbers and in, in, in this experience. And so it was, it was like a warning saying like, you can go crazy with this if you want to. And there was definitely a temptation, but you know, something in me was saying like, just lay off, just deal with things. You have to, be cool now and deal with things. Hmm. And, you know, with a little bit of, you know, retrospective, you know, vision in time, I can say like, yeah, there was maybe some kind of entity, some kind of aspect of mind there that wanted me to spin out and just go nuts. You know, so that's, that's something hmm. that, that I think the language of synchronicity is capable of doing, you know, so you kind of have to discriminate with who is who's the source of the messenger, who's talking. And it's not always to our benefit to follow these things, you know, to to their logical conclusion. Yeah, and I think one yeah, of the I'll stop there. One of the things that convolutes it even more is the very real possibility that whatever this intelligence is is throwing back at you what you are is mirroring you in some way and so if you're going crazy with stuff it sends yeah. you crazy and it, that maybe even answer is a question that i had about 
um, your parents, you, you talked about them as sort of being there but not there, and that's kind of why you thought maybe you were getting into the UFO stuff. And the way you talk about it makes it sound as though the UFO stuff is always there for you, but it isn't. Like, the UFO stuff actually seems to mirror your parents, and the question is, so is that psychological, or is there a phenomenon that's actually being in your life the way your parents were, because that's what you're used to? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, and not exact, not one that I'd come to myself. Um, so, I mean, I, I, what I was, I think what I was drawing in the book, and I kind of forget some of the things that I said, so I might be wrong about this, but this is my thinking on the subject now, is that because my relationship to my parents was very distant, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't antagonistic necessarily, but there wasn't a lot of, there really wasn't any emotional closeness there. Now I had a safe environment, a safe enough environment that I grew up in. You know, my father made good money, so we didn't ever have to worry about not having a home or not having food to eat or any of those kind of insecurities. But there wasn't an emotional closeness. And so the question that I ask myself about this experience is like, is this providing or seeming to provide, or am I making it provide, the sense of emotional and spiritual attachment that I didn't feel growing up? Maybe it is. I think there's more to it than that, but it does seem to be finding a pathway into me through that emotional need, that unfulfilled emotional need. Like that is something that it's able to grab onto, let's say, and find an access point to me through. Now, again, the possibility exists that I am simply compensating for things that I feel myself to be lacking. And I'm looking for meaning in this UFO world, this UFO experience that my life hasn't otherwise provided, you know, that my family situation hasn't otherwise provided. Now, is the, is the UFO experience itself mirroring back to me the relationship that I had with my parents? Well, you know, perhaps by way of compensation, but there's also that distance because it's not something, you know, the UFO, whatever speaks through it. It's not something that I seem to have a very face-to-face -face kind of relationship with, you know, like I've seen a couple of UFOs, big deal. I don't remember, at least in a non-hypnotized state, I don't remember ever having encounters with beings. Um, but the sense of an intelligence is kind of suffused through the background of everything. So um, is that the sort of, is that a compensation for what I'm lacking? Yeah. Um, is it only that? I don't know. I kind of don't think so. But again, it's not for me to say because I just don't have that level of information. I don't have that I don't have, you know, I, because I know a number of people who have, who are in, you know, who are experiences as well. And I meet with this, with this group online and, you know, it used to be we met in person, but we meet now online. There are people that I really have, um, that I envy. I envy their level of experience that they say last week I had an experience with a gray being and 
this and this and this happens. And I now, given their, I'm thinking of one or two people in particular here who are very well grounded, very intelligent, not fantasy prone. And, and so when they say that they had an experience, that they had an encounter with a gray being or with a, with a reptilian or whatever it was that they had, I take them seriously and I believe that that really happened. And I envy that because I don't have that level of experience that I'm aware of. Now, this does kind of mirror the, the family, the family um, dynamic in that, you know, the parents are there, but there's not a, there's not a strong connection to them. Um, again, I'm getting really diffused in my thoughts, so I'm not sure if I'm straying too far from what you're, from what you were asking. Um, no, I know no, this okay. is this is riffing at this point, but it's what this is. Bring me in here, please. Makes sense. It's jazz, man. It's jazz. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have one more. It's uh, jazz. We're syncopated. <laughs> There's one more thing I wanted to read, and then it will be all jazz from here on out. Um, okay. All right. If, I'm going to read this bit, but it's not a bit. It's long. So bear with me, folks. I'm going to actually have to take off my glasses and reveal that I'm Superman. Um, this is, uh, on page 115, uh, you say, I don't feel like I belong here, yet I am, uh, yet here I am, without much alternative. And that's okay, insofar as I'm maybe never supposed to feel exactly human, identifying instead with some vague something from an indescribable, uh, somewhere else. Okay, sure, that's okay, I guess. My doubts are as present under hypnosis as they are at any other time, and when my therapist asked if there was anything I would want to ask of the beings in the present moment, I said, is this real or am I making it up? It seemed a valid question. In response, I saw one of the vegetable-slash-cactus-slash-insect-gray-green people facing me in my mind's eye. It held a hand over one side of its face, the tips of the upward-pointing fingers just beneath one of its eyes. I had in fact woken that morning with one eye scratchy, uh, red and itching, as if injured or reacting to an allergy. It's not something that usually happens. My first thought on waking was that someone had pulled the eye out while I slept and mucked around with the inside of my head. If that seems a bit extreme, it has been a really fitful, it had been a really fitful night, which isn't infrequent for me. And though I did finally get to sleep at some point, likely just before dawn, to awaken with my eye like this was just insulting. I didn't really believe that my eye had been plucked out, etc., but the thought persisted. Now, this image of the creature pointing toward its own eye seemed to highlight my fragile state, as if to say, well, we did this to you, didn't we? It was another joke, the punchline being that I would never really know. I just thought that. Uh, and this seemed to be the point. I wasn't supposed to be certain, was I? Um, not ever. Not one way, nor another, and not about anything. I could continue toward an extreme of doubt and ultimately discard all of this as obviously fantastical bullshit, or I could let myself slide into credulity to arrive at all sorts of fanciful conclusions. Neither direction was the right one. In fact, they both feel wrong, but it was and is necessary that I give equal valence to each position. That is, a continued ambivalence toward, short of rejection of, these or any other position. Uh, there, this is the path I continue to try and walk, difficult as it is. As if to stress this point, I saw the being turn its head slightly in three-quarter profile. 
This I took as further nuance to their message. They themselves were in an unspecific state, a state of superposition or deep ambiguity, of many possible conditions at once, but never a single this or that. It was all, none, and everything in between with them, always, and therefore equally impossible that I should remain uncertain. It was and is, however, this deep uncertainty that keeps me searching, a necessary impulse for my own evolution, to never kill the novelty of what this experience has to offer by settling on a single answer, thereby negating all the others, deeply frustrating as that can be. And now I'm Clark Kent again. Um, so the ambiguous state of superposition <laughs> it sounds all nice and sciencey, but it's also something that a puppet might say, right? Like a puppet uh, is, well, what did I write here? What is a puppet if not a once solid, fully formed emotive thing and a state of potential waiting for intelligence to animate it in ways that follow the rules of its form, including the emotive, its emotive qualities? So my question for you is, do you have a sense whether the entity in that ambiguous state is something like a puppet or an avatar through which an intelligence maneuvers uh, in our world? Um, is, is it the intelligence itself? Is it a thought construct coming from your personal consciousness or that of the universe at large, something else entirely? Is that something that you can speak to or is that too much? No, I think I can speak to that because, again, that's like central to the question that I've been asking myself. It seems to me that this inquiry and, and you know, understand that this was taken in a hypnotic state. And so I was basically approaching this as inquiring of my own unconscious mind rather than inquiring of what is the truth, what is the real memory of what really happened. I think that this entity, this other, is a real thing. And I think that it exists, or at least it speaks through kind of my own core. And by my own core, I mean anybody's own core. You know, our own deepest unconscious, I think, is where we can access and interface with something that is so other that we kind of have to call it alien because we don't recognize it as us. But at the same time, it is us. Like it is other and it is self at the same time. And that's what I mean by, you know, things like quantum superposition. When I use words like that, of course, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. I don't really know what I'm talking about. But when I talk about being in superposition, this both at once, or maybe everything at once, it's like, yes, I'm addressing an other that I take as, I don't know, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, ultra-dimensional, ultra-what? I don't know. Other. It is so other that it causes my whole soul to vibrate and feel overwhelmed and just go like, what is going on? I think my head is going to break, but it's within, it's, it's within my own unconscious. Therefore it's within anybody's own unconscious. Hmm. The difference is, is that I need to, you know, I'm very interested in 
finding this, I'm very interested in getting to know the unconscious, my own, because it's the one I've got, and interfacing with this thing that is there. Now, does that mean that it's an alien? Does that mean that it comes from space? Does that mean that it comes from another dimension and that it is definitely something else? Again, I don't know. I don't know anything, really. I know the pain hurts, but that's that's about as much as I do really conclusively know. And that will do it for the non-subscriber portion of the program. Um, please do consider subscribing to unknowncountry.com to hear the rest of this interview. We're going to go in-depth into hypnosis, his hypnotically retrieved material, and what he believes it means, he, what he believes it actually is, if not memory. Perhaps it is memory. Let's find out. If not, either way, get his book, The Seventh Dead. The UFO in the Underworld, a memoir. It's a fascinating read, and it truly is uh, a phase that all authentic experiencers, I believe, go through, where we wonder if every little, every little thing, every little sound we hear, every little light in the sky, every little, little detail um, jumps out at us. And is that the phenomenon, or is that us? Are we creating this, or is it happening to us? Are we making meaning, essentially, out of even the smallest things, or our meaning makers coming into our lives to wake us up to something about ourselves and beyond. That's the central question of this book, The Seventh Dead. And you can check it out and check out his other work, check out his podcast at his website, numinosumradio.com. There will be a link in the description, but it is spelled N-U-M-I-N-O-S. U-M Radio, so that's, again, NumenosumRadio.com. All right, thank you, Brian, for being a guest. Thank you all for listening. Subscribers, sally forth. Everyone else, I'll see you again in a month. Whitley will be back next week. Take care. Oh, well, I was just going to say, as you're going through the list of things that it might be, but there is sort of a military connection that you make in the book, and... How real is that mm -hmm. for you, as opposed to aliens, interdimensional? Because eh, it sounds more grounded to say military. Yeah, um, I don't take the story. There's a story suggested, and that's partly through my experience, conscious waking experience. And um, what that experience was, was this is back in 2012, and where I live on an island near a Navy air base, there's, you know, aircraft that fly directly over my house as they're doing their uh, carrier landing practice. There's sort of a simulated field, a carrier simulation where they practice. So there'll be loud jet airplanes, you know, growlers, they call them. These jet fighters will be flying overhead very low, very loudly. And so I'm familiar with, with the military presence that way. Um, but this one thing was very strange that it seemed to be coming from the north, which is where the airbase is, but it was following a very strange flight path directly towards me and flying very low, lower than is normally the case with these growler jets and making no sound whatever. And it looked an awful, awful lot like a B-2 bomber, a, a stealth bomber or a stealth fighter. I don't know what kind of. But, you know, I had that, that distinctive V-wing thing, and it just seemed at the time 
like it was military explainable enough, except that it was going very slow and completely silently. And it flew directly over my head. Like it was pointing at me saying, there's our target fly overhead. So it made me wonder like, first off, what was that? And I've, you know, never come to any sort of conclusions about that, but it's a thing that happened. I was perfectly conscious, awake, and it's not hypnotic. You know, it's, it's, it's there. It's a thing. So now my father had worked for Boeing for a very long time and pretty much his entire career. And he started off as an electrical engineer there and was at some point involved as he moved up the ranks, he became involved in the defense program stuff. And I don't know what he did after, after a certain point because he couldn't talk about it. He wouldn't talk about it. He had top secret clearance. And um, not that that was ever made explicit in my household, just that he would not talk about what he did at work. And, you know, he was a man of many secrets that way. Um, not necessarily a man of mystery, but just a man of secrets. And I remember one thing that we did when I was a kid was, you know, this had been back in the late 70s, early 80s around then, was my father took us out to Boeing Field there in um, or the King County Airfield there in Seattle where Boeing has, you know, where they take off and land stuff from time to time. And he parked at the end of the runway and said, just wait for this. This is going to be pretty cool. And then one of the early prototypes of a, of a, of a stealth bomber flew overhead, came in for a landing. And that was that, you know, and I thought, well, I don't know what this is. You know, it's a rather strange and futuristic looking airplane. But at the time it wasn't really, you know, this was, it wasn't a common thing. It wasn't commonly known. So I think that my father was on some degree, you know, involved in its creation. I don't know in what capacity or whatnot, but he at least knew that it was going to land there at that particular time. And that he was working on these secret, you know, defense department things. So when, you know, decades later, a thing that looks like a stealth airplane, but behaves rather strangely, even for a stealth airplane, um, flies directly over my head. It seems to be that something is sending me a signal. And that thing that it's the signal that it seems to be sending me is look at my relationship to my father. Now, it's not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily saying you were involved in some kind of secret military operation way back when and don't remember it. That possibility, that possibility maybe exists. I don't know, but it is saying B two, you know, saying stealth aircraft, something very odd about it, and the relationship to my father. So these are lines that I trace, you know, and hypnotically, we, you know, in one of my hypnosis sessions, we were looking at this. And I don't know, I don't remember that it came to any great, you know conclusion or any sort of recognition of some deeper truth, but it did seem to be drawing. It's, it's, it's as if these points were being laid out in the map and I was able to, you know, if I chose to draw the connection between them and say like, oh yes, yeah, some kind of secret military thing was going on. Hmm. Now I have other 
memories that were hypnotically, you know, hypnotically induced or hypnotically accessed about meeting a giant mantis creature and, you know, things that it did with me. And I don't know what the truth of that is. I don't take it too awfully. I mean, I take it seriously, but I don't take it as necessarily the concrete truth of what happened. It's more like I look at it as like a dreamlike, a dreamlike state where there's where it's full of symbolic meaning, and it might also have actually happened. So again, there's this whole story of of you know inference, and that's what I do. You know, since I'm also a novelist, you know, is like I draw inference between things and I try to evoke a certain state of 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 um, emotional question, you know, a, a certain emotional state, a certain ambiguity. Okay. So it seems as if the mind of whatever I'm speaking with in these hypnotic states is inviting me again to make connections that are that I hear often made in 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 the sort of common UFO sphere of you know stories of of military operations, military programs, secretive programs, things being done to children. And I know Whitley has his stories around this as well. And I take those seriously. I just don't know that any of that really happened to me. You know, I don't know what that is. I don't know that it happened to me, but I'm being invited by either this other or my own mind to draw those conclusions. And again, because I can't be conclusive about any of this stuff because I just don't know. Right. The possibility exists as something to, to just kind of sit with and see what it evokes in me. Which seems like a very long answer to your question. No, I, I prefer to think it's that's, thorough. That's, <laughs> uh, so I guess, well, this brings us to hypnosis. And, you know, you mm -hmm. talk about not taking it literally. And I'm just wondering, when did you come to that conclusion? Was that before you went to hypnosis or was it during or uh like at what point were you like you know what i don't even think i'm here to retrieve memory so much as uh fart around <laughs> play with play with my unconscious see what happens you know that kind of thing yeah i mean you call it farting around i take it rather more seriously than that but i mean to be honest it, it was it was a conclusion you know it was my approach before i went into it and to be to give credit where credit's due, I mean, your attitude about about hypnosis and hearing things that you, Jeremy, had to say about it was, in a way, responsible for me having to question its validity while still undergoing it. But you know, putting it into this into this very sort of um, conditional state of like of of just not taking it too literally. You know, it's. Would you recommend it for it's that? It's a tool that. Like, I, would you recommend it to experiencers who, you know, like, okay, you're not necessarily going to retrieve actual memory, but you're going to get something, mm -hmm. and that something's going to be meaningful for you. Would you recommend them doing that? I do recommend for some people to do that, you know, to take that attitude with it um, and to undergo it 
with trusted, you know, with somebody that you can trust, you know, somebody without an agenda, you know, and somebody who's open. So the which idea, I was lucky enough to find. The idea that that you can go under hypnosis to retrieve something, a memory or something that you are hoping is real, but not be attached mm-hmm. to it as a reality. I mean, is that hard to do? Like, I'm just thinking about, you know, Emma Woods or any of the people I know who have undergone hypnosis who end up believing that that's, at least for a time, you know, Emma Woods came out of it. But certain people believe that that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, there have been experiments done that show that, you know, obviously people uh, who have demonstrably false memory retrievals will adamantly defend that, that, no, what they retrieved under hypnosis was, was real. I mean, if you go into it with that, the skepticism that you're talking about, does that dull that effect of walking away believing you have a real memory? Is that how that works? Yeah, I think it can't help. It can't help but throw that into question, you know. Now, is that something that everybody should do? I don't know. I don't necessarily think so, but I think if you're drawn to pursue this, you know, this, this line of inquiry, then that skepticism is, is necessary. And I'm thinking, you know, some of the things that I found in, in, in hypnosis have a sort of the ring of truth to them. Some very strange experiences that may or may not have happened, but that feel strange enough that they do kind of, they have an influence on me, whatever their ontological basis is, whatever their phenomenological basis really is. They have an emotional effect. And although I can't quite look at them as things that definitely happened the way that I saw them happening while in the state, they do have a significance that's really hard to pin down. Now, if something like that had never happened, then it would be hard to say that, you know, hypnosis or any other sort of method of consciousness inquiry would be valuable at all. But I think there are things of value to be had, to be found with this, with this kind of method provided certain conditions are met that, you know, again, you're with somebody who's, who's trustworthy and honest and, and doesn't have an agenda and, and subjecting you. And, and also that, you know, you take the, take the results of it with, you know, a certain degree of skepticism. Would you say that the meaning of it or, or whatever is happening there, like, okay, let's start here. Dreams. It seems to me, you can have personal dreams that are your own unconscious baggage speaking to you and telling you what's really on your mind. Mm-hmm. Then there seem then there's lucid dreams where you wake up into the dream and you can you know control it and go all over the place. And then there's uh, what seem to be communications from another intelligence <laughs> that come into your dream that infiltrate the dream mm-hmm. um, or perhaps even set up the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that that is this does for you? Did you experience that with hypnosis? Like, are there parts of hypnosis that are like, oh, I know that this is false. Oh, I think this is unconscious. Oh, wait, I think that's another intelligence. Does it work that way? Mm-hmm. 
Sort of. Yeah. I mean, there are certain there were certain things. Now, again, it's so ambiguous. This is this is frustrating even to talk about it because it's so ambiguous, but it's also the nature of the thing. One of the memories that I remember, you know, one of the things that came up during hypnosis was at a time when I was married to somebody who was, you know, who I think was probably narcissistic, but whatever her diagnosis was, I was under a lot of pressure and, you know, being pretty much constantly put down. And then soon after, you know, after a certain amount of time spent this way, I left that relationship. I had to assert my own self. So in, 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 in reference to that, I recalled an experience of what looks like an abduction experience. And this was an associative, let me try and make this make sense because it gets so, so desperately complicated. I was undergoing hypnosis to re recall something that I remembered happening when I was a kid in which my, um, the end of my bed just started like jumping up and down. Like it was an earthquake, but it wasn't an earthquake. And so where I was led with that is like where my mind jumped to as we're, as my therapist and I were asking about that experience was to a much later time when I was in bed with my then wife, you know, so 30 years or so had passed 25 years or so a gap was there. And in this memory, again, the bed was jumping up and down at the foot of it, but it was the bed that we had at that time. Now that I know that that didn't happen. I didn't wake up with the bed jumping up and down as an adult with my wife there. That did not happen. But the scene as it played out in this hypnotic regression was that I woke up, my wife was still asleep, apparently just, you know, induced to stay so, as a large blue being was at the foot of the bed, beckoning to me with a gesture. And then in the scene, I got out of bed, followed the blue being outside through, you know, through the house and out into the front yard where a particular craft was waiting for us. And then again in the scene, I was taken into the craft and introduced to a symbol on a screen. And that symbol, it's the same symbol that's on the cover of the book, was myself. It was like an indication of myself. And so I was introduced basically to who I really am, given the strength thereby to assert who I was, who was being denied by my spouse at just about every turn in subtle and not so subtle ways, who was being challenged, the very existence, the very validity of my existence as a separate person was being challenged by this relationship. And so what happened in this recalled experience was a sort of validation of myself, and it gave me the strength in retrospect to leave that, to leave that relationship. Now, did this really happen in actual life? I think not. I, I don't think that it happened. I think it has the flavor of a compensation. It has the flavor of me stitching elements together of things that 
you know, I do consciously recall dynamics that were, you know, psychological dynamics that were active at the time of my being married and also the resolution of that through an intervention of this other. So did that happen in any sort of objective sense? I don't think so. I think the, the, the scene as it played out was an invention of my imagination. I don't think that it's something that really happened. But at a very deep level, it is something that happened. Because I did, you know, at the time, at the time I was being questioned, I was being doubted, I was being dismissed, and I was being challenged in a very fundamental way by the spouse. And I found somehow the strength to not only figure out who I was in the relationship, but to assert myself and to ultimately leave a toxic relationship. And that has the feeling of something that came from a spiritual connection to something. Call it God, call it UFO, call it whatever. Whatever face it wears is kind of unimportant insofar as the face needs to be something that I can relate to. So um, I know that this is very vague, but it's what I'm trying to say is that there's an element of the thing that I recalled that is real. And that is at a very deep level, there was some kind of intervention that set me on course. But as I recalled it in hypnosis, the whole scene with all of its details I don't really believe that happened. It could have happened, but it has the feeling of something that I made up. And that feeling, you know, that intuitive sense of like, no, this isn't quite legit, is very important, you know, when entering, you know, when entering into these liminal states of consciousness and feeling out what's true and what's not. So there's an aspect of truth at the very core of it. But then there's not, there's potentially a lot of illusion that's surrounding it. But that illusion is all instructive. And it might have actually happened. I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess my question then is, and, and it sounds like that would not be an example of it, but maybe the military one would be something, uh, or the, the, the creature in profile. Um, are, there, are you saying also that there are experiences under hypnosis where you feel as though there's an intelligence that is waiting for you to be hypnotized to interact with you or knows that you're hypnotized and is interacting with you as you're hypnotized. Yeah, I, I think that there is. And the reason I feel that way is because, and this is described in the book, is that during one session, my therapist asked me to interact with the being, you know, I was, ha I was having some kind of recollection of being with this giant praying mantis. And my therapist says, well, now turn and ask the, you know, ask this question. I forget exactly what the question was, but the thing is, it was, it was like breaking the fourth wall of the situation, you know, because up until that point we were supposedly going through a memory. That was the idea was going through a memory. But then the moment that I turned to ask this, you know, memory creature, what is something? What's this about? It like turned its head just very slightly, but the feeling tone of it 
was so intense, it practically made me jump. And I knew that I was like, not just sitting with myself at that moment, that there was something there. And it had been invoked by this breaking of the fourth wall of the, of the you know, illusion or the supposition of memory by suddenly bringing it into real time. And then where I was talking with something, you know, was I talking with a giant praying mantis? Maybe. Was I talking with something else? Well, yes, it was. And it was there. It was there and present. And, you know, that's the sense that I have underlying this phenomenon, at least insofar as I relate to it, is that it is something always present. That there is this, you know, thing kind of always somewhere just behind my eyes or just, you know, just in front of me. Usually my life is quite prosaic, so it doesn't seem like, you know, there's a lot of magic there or whatever, but then it can just kind of suddenly appear. And particularly if I'm able to connect with it through its feeling tone, then it seems like, yes, there's another. Now, whether it really is other or whether it's the deepest layer of myself and or both, yes, you know, hard to say, but it's there, you know, and so it's there, whatever it is, in the midst of, of hypnosis or of anything really, you know, but particularly there, because that's where I've come to inquire of it. So, uh, if it differs, how does it differ in the way that you handle, um, trying to decode a hypnotically retrieved memory from a normal memory? Um, you know, an experience that it, as it's happening or maybe the day after and you're trying to figure out, okay, what is the meaning of it? Is there a difference in the way you approach those two things, hypnosis, hypnotically retrieved memory and, and experience just as it happened? Well, experience just as it happened is, is harder to dismiss as imagination. Um, though, you know, to some degree, memory, all memory is imagining. Um, so anything remembered is, is a little bit questionable no matter what. Um, but I do bring a different sort of, uh, a different sort of skepticism to, to the, um, to the hypnotically retrieved stuff as I do to a dream, you know, as I do when I'm acquiring a dream, you know, I look at it as this is information presented to me that, potentially has a lot of meaning. And it's easy to accept that state with of a dream. You know, it's easy to accept that a dream is is not a literal thing, except that on its own terms, it is a literal thing. You know, it's presented itself as it's presented itself. And so it's a fact. But do you and find then, that the, that the literal experience that experiences that you have um, serve the same you know, potential uh, psychological effects or, or you know, uh, of giving you clarity about a personal issue or something in the, the way that the hypnosis uh, material does? Like, are they both working on you? Is, is this intelligence essentially working on you through all these different states of mind in the same way? And, and it's all, you know, sort of, at least at first, it seems about giving you psychological clarity about your own issues kind of in the way people talk about like 
they take ayahuasca, the ayahuasca goddess sits them down and says, hey, what's on your mind kind of thing? I mean, is that what this is? Is this cosmic mm-hmm. psychologists or what is this? Well, I think it's conditionally psychologists because that's what we have to deal with is our psyche. And I think I'm only going to address one aspect of your question here is that it addresses psychology because that's both what we have to experience and perceive with, and it's also what stands in the way of any sort of clear perception. I mean, I'm talking about mountain baggage here. Mm-hmm. And what this experience has led me towards is to try and get as deeply into my own unconscious as I can. And that involves dealing with a lot of really shadowy stuff, dealing with a lot of really unpleasant stuff. You know, there's a lot that I'm, that I'm ashamed of that I've done when I was young. And then there's, there's a lot that's just difficult to handle, but in order to come to any sort of call it objective understanding, I have to deal with that stuff that's within me. And so the experiences led me to a very deep inquiry of my own shadowy material, you know, what the Jungians would call the shadow work. And they would say, quite rightly, I think, that in order to come to being who we truly are and coming to more, more of a transpersonal perspective, you have to deal with your own shadowy stuff. That's kind of the first step. And that's been my experience. Now, I've not gone through Jungian psychotherapy i've not been through analysis but the ufo experience has led me to some very similar places i think in that it's made me have to acquaint myself with the worst of myself you know it's made me have to sit with the fact that when i was a kid i wanted to kill myself and take somebody else out with me anonymously you know it's made me have to own these really dark and frankly horrible things because that was mine. That has been my darkness, my shadow material. And in order to get to any sort of depth, I have to get past that, right? At least I have to integrate that. Let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, it's sort of related. Getting back to my notes here. I did have one more question on this, um, which is something that something that I had felt for a long time, probably since the beginning, since around high schoolish, but I never really actually talked about publicly, um, which is talking about what these experiences might be doing on a personal level. Um, the element of feeling like you're being watched or being monitored or perhaps even set up to see if you make the right moral choice in a very basic situation. And in the book, you give the example of offering to help an an old woman change her flat tire in the parking lot of a gym. Um, I, I too have had that suspicion that I'm, you know, that there are moments of being set up to see what moral choice you will make in some way. And I'm not certain that that's true, so I, I guess I haven't really talked about it. 
But I'm just wondering, how comfortable are you in thinking that there are such events for which you're being watched to see what you do, you know, at, that are that are being set up by an invisible hand and that also involve other people? Like, because I, I, as much as I may feel it, there is also like a narcissism that goes with that of like, oh, well, then that other person who's in trouble is what? In trouble for me <laughs> to, to make a moral choice about, you know, of what to do with them. So I'm just, I don't know. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you, or is that like a, just an immature way to even look at that? I mean, maybe the, the problem is going to be there and then you're, it's just up to you to help or not. I, I don't know. But um, I guess how literally do you see that, that, that sense of being watched to make a moral choice? Is, does that, is that something big or is that just something that you have thought about in the background? Well, there seems to be kind of a connection, and that's happened to me a couple of times in that taking the effort, the difficult effort, to step outside of myself for the sake of another person. In, in the example that you cite, that wasn't that difficult, but it was just, you know, stepping out of my own, you know, whatever my own thoughts and processes were to try and help somebody who was, you know, who was confused by their situation and didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do either, but, you know, somehow we got it all resolved. That seems to matter, you know, the moral, taking the right moral choice to, to be of assistance, to be of service seems to matter. Um, now, whether, now I don't think that these situations were necessarily set up, or at least this situation wasn't necessarily set up. It was just, you know, something that happened. Now, maybe it was set up. I don't, I don't know. Does that make me important? Well, if I believe that it was set up to test me, it does kind of imply that, but I don't know that that's really at, what's at work here. I know that whether something else is watching me as I'm making these choices, whether to do the you know, quote unquote right or wrong thing, I'm watching, you know, I'm the one who has to live with myself with whether I've been, you know, a selfish prick or whether I've been helpful. And that if I do what I know to be the right thing, I feel a whole lot freer in myself. And that freedom opens me up perceptually, emotionally, spiritually, to an entire spectrum of experience that is not available when I'm wrapped up in the bad conscious, bad conscience of having done something that I know is not the right thing. So that's always active because, you know, I'm just always with myself that way. Now, whether something else is poised and watching, it might be the case because after having taken that small helpful step, a very strange kind of thing happened that I saw. It does suggest that somebody's there and waiting and waiting to see what I do and then revealing itself or leading me on to the next level. If, if I've done the right thing, hmm. I don't know the possibility for inflation and for taking oneself too seriously and, you know, just feeling really important is certainly there, you know, you can draw these conclusions, um, but it doesn't serve you to do so. It doesn't serve me to do so because again, it's the same problem. I have to live with myself. 
I have to know whether I'm being honest with myself or not. And that's something that fundamentally, that if I'm not honest with myself, I'm deeply uncomfortable. And if I am honest with myself, then, you know, then I'm okay. And it so, seems like the phenomenon itself is able to respond to that. The phenomenon itself is able to respond to that? In other words, yeah. you, so if you make a, you know, whatever decision you, you make, you get a repercussion or, or a, some sort of communication that it mattered one way or the other? Kind of seems that way. I mean, most of the time, not, you know, most of the time it's just, you know, me walking around feeling one way or the other, feeling like, like I'm okay or like I've done something that I, that I regret. But in the couple of instances that I think of where this sort of spiritual and emotional dynamic was very much at play, then it seems to be there and responsive to it. It seems to be at the level of a moral test and I don't know that that's a very difficult thing for an entity that, you know, somehow fashions the stuff of reality around itself as, as a means of communication. I don't know that it's a big deal for it to do that. So it's hard for me to say like, oh, I'm so important that reality itself has constellated a certain way around me. It's like, I am part of reality. I am walking amidst this experience of it which seems to at times have a greater level of intelligence and a greater level of influence, certainly able to communicate by fashioning reality in a certain kind of way with me towards a moral purpose, towards a spiritual purpose that does seem to happen at least to me twice, you know, hmm. that there's been a response of sorts. Now that, one, the example that I cite of helping the old lady, that is a fairly concrete example. What I saw after that was something that I saw, not something that I imagined, something that was very strange. And what it was, was, again, another military, as I was driving up the highway, heading into town, heading into the town where the, where the airfield is, where the military airfield is, there was another fighter jet of a very old, basically obsolete um, uh, make flying parallel to the highway, which they don't normally do. Again, very low, again, very slow, like maybe 10, 15 miles an hour. It was hovering just above the tree line, completely silent. What was that? You know, something that, you know, if you weren't paying attention, you could just go, oh, it's, you know, another another Navy fighter. But it was very strange. And that was what I saw immediately after, after you know, trying to assist this old woman. Hmm. What was that? Was that helpful? Was that a test? It was something. Um, hard for me to say exactly what, but my moral choice you know, what I was willing to do to step out of myself in a very small way, you know, it wasn't a big deal. I wasn't, you know, saving anybody's life, giving blood or being a hero. Right. It was just, you know, advising somebody to take a breath and call AAA, you know. So it was a small test, but it, something responded, I think. It seemed like there was like there was a connection between my decision and the response of, of the thing. 
Well, we're coming to the end of the show, and, um, you know, we, we didn't really get into what the title is. In fact, we didn't get into reincarnation and the, the music connection. There's a lot in this book, folks. It's a, it's a small book, but it is chock full of uh, stuff, really good stuff. Um, so I absolutely recommend it. But if you want to say just a few words, I don't know if you do, um, before I ask my final question about the title, The Seventh Dead, the, uh, the UFO in the Underworld. Um, besides the fact that it's such a cool title, uh, why did you name it that? Um, I don't honestly know. It was a, an intuitive process. It, it was just like a voice in me kind of said, like, that's what I should call it. And I know it doesn't make a lot of sense. It sounds a little bit like The Seven Deadly Sins. It's not what I was thinking, but it was like The Seventh Dead. I mean, I do seem to have an internal relationship to the dead that feels sometimes very powerful. You know, whether these are personal dead people that I know who have died, or whether this is in a more collective sense, like some kind of mass of humanity who is in a, you know, dead state. Both of these things are true. These seem to animate me to a certain degree. Like I feel a connection to the dead. So, this is, you know, the book, the experience, the UFO experience seems to me to have a very profound connection with that same realm of the dead. Like, I know that Whitley and other people have, have made this connection before, and I think it's very true, is that there's something deeply powerful that speaks to me from Pluto's realm, you know, from, from Hades. And so that was expressed, again, intuitively, not really rationally, in the title. Why is it the seventh dead? I don't know. Um, it does kind of imply that, you know, if I'm the seventh dead, if it's me that I'm referring to, and I don't know that either, then I'm somewhere back in the hierarchy. You know, I'm not the first dead, not even the second dead. I'm somewhere back, you know, kind of in the, in the wings, in the peanut gallery. So that's where that comes from, which is an explanation that's not really an explanation, but it's the truth. It's just kind of what happened. It's like, I just knew I had to call it that. I didn't know why. And I've just kind of, you know, as I often do when I'm writing, it's like, okay, something is speaking and now I'll just trust it and, and let it go. Let it go with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, then here's, speaking of let it go, that gets right to the last question, which is now that you've written this and you've published it, essentially letting it go out of your, you know, you breathe that sigh of relief of like, ah, okay, it's out. Hmm. Has that changed your uh, relationship with this phenomenon at all or given you more clarity into it, the act of letting go all of this into a book? It's definitely changed my, pers my relationship with memory in that having really written these things down as, as, explicitly as I could, I've been able to let go of my own attachment to these memories. And I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's a bad thing, but they're less present. You know, it used to be that I carried these things around with me kind of semi-consciously all the time. And now that's less the case. It's like I've kind of let them out of myself, put them into an objective state, I guess. And, and now I can let go of them. 
um, has it changed my relationship to the nature of the phenomenon itself? Again, hard to say. Because I think of my experience on a day-to-day basis as being pretty prosaic, pretty quotidian, frankly, kind of dull, you know? So I don't get a sense that there's a lot of presence of something else that's really animating me all the time. But then I'll also find that if I look back at a time, say a couple of years past, 10 years past, whatever, when I thought I was going through very dry, prosaic, quotidian day-to-day life, then I see that there was actually something a lot more happening there too. I just didn't recognize it as as odd at the time or as significant at the time. So that might be the case now. It's like I'm living in Thailand at the moment. I've just recently moved to Thailand, and I find that there's a different kind of rhythm to just being here than I'm used to. And so it's like the environment here is kind of speaking to me in a certain kind of way, which is, I'm not saying that that's an alien talking. I'm saying that that's my intuitive response to a new environment, that things feel different here. But I might find that some years hence, I look back at this time and see that there was an intelligence speaking through things that I didn't think that it was speaking through. It's really hard to say. So has the book, the writing of the book, changed my relationship to this thing, whatever it is? Hard to say. I do feel differently about the memories themselves and that I feel less attached to them. And it's frankly harder to recall them now than it was before I wrote them. Um, Beyond that, I, I really don't know. Yeah, because I've always said, like, the reason I write books about my own experiences is so that I don't have to remember them anymore. <laughs> I just find that to be true. <laughs> like, you write them and then yeah. it's, you, have, you got more room up here for other stuff. Uh, but Brian, yeah. thank you for uh, for chatting. And um, I guess uh, just at the end here, let us know wh- um, what your website is, uh, um, what it is about. Yeah. It's Numinosum Books is the name that I've given my little publishing company, which is me, just me, publishing me. It's N-U-M-I-N-O-S-U-M books.com, all one word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And does that have a link and to your, your podcast as well? Yeah. Yeah. And my podcast, Numinosum Radio is not me talking about aliens and UFOs. It's just music. Um, I'm an experimental musician, and that's an outlet for me. I create a, you know, I record a fair amount, and it's always an exploration. And so I release these as Numinos and Radio. So far, always a half hour exactly in length. Um, it's music that I write for myself to help me concentrate, to help me write. And... Um, so I think it serves a certain utility, can serve a utility, a similar t- utility to other people, is that it's non-obtrusive music, ambient, and that it serves to focus creative concentration. At least it does for me, and I hope it does for other people. It's, and it's something that I do almost compulsively. 
Um, but uh, nice. yeah, that's that's my podcast, Newman Awesome Radio. Very good. All right. Well, thank you Someday again. Maybe for... I'll have one more talk. <laughs> thank you again for doing this, and uh, you know. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk again. You know, maybe we can talk about reincarnation and like music. <laughs> All right, uh, Brian Short, everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me. On. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>